Hosea chapter number 8, beginning with verse number 1, and here is how it reads God's word. Set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. To me they cry. My God, we, Israel, know you. Israel has spurned the good. The enemy shall pursue him. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel. A craftsman made it. It is not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. For they sow the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no head. It shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. Israel is swallowed up. Already they are among the nations as a useless vessel. For they have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. And though they hire allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up. And the kings and princes shall soon rife because of the tribute. Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. Were I to write for him my laws by the ten thousand? They will be regarded as a strange thing. As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it. But the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. For Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces in Judah, has multiplied fortified cities. So I will send a fire upon his cities and it shall devour her strongholds. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have your seat. We have been in this series in the book of Hosea, which we've titled Learning to Love Again. 
The book of Hosea begins with an unconventional love story. The prophet Hosea is called by God and instructed by God to go and marry a woman that's going to love another man. And what we learned in Hosea chapters 1 through 3 is that God's love is relentless. God's love is redemptive because even after Hosea marries Gomer, Gomer goes and finds another lover. But God tells the prophet Hosea, go and love her again. And we said, and, 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 and Hosea had to pay a price to get his wife back. And is that not the story of the gospel? God loved us who did not love him but loved the world, but paid a deep price by sending his one and only son, Jesus Christ. So that we could be in right relationship with him. And now chapters 4 up to where we are now have specified for us all the wrongs and the wrongdoings of Israel. What specifically in chapters 8 through 10 is Israel charged with and accused of? First of all, here in chapter 8, they forgot God, but God promised to remember their sin. They forgot God, but God promised to remember their sin. In what ways have they forgotten God? I'm glad you asked. Look with me at verse number 4 in chapter 8. Verse 4, in the Hebrew, it's emphatic. The first word, they made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. They forgot God, friends, and that they failed to seek God and consult God for their government leaders. We, we must remember that the king was God's anointed. The king was to be chosen by the Lord. The king's responsibility was to carry out the rule of God on the earth. And Israel was to seek God in appointing their king. But obviously here in chapter 8, they failed to seek God's direction and wisdom on choosing their political leaders. Instead of seeking God's face, they used their own wisdom and methods to choose their leaders. And here, already, God exposes their hypocrisy and their deception. Back up with me a verse in chapter, uh, in, in chapter 8, verse number 2. He says, to me they cry, my God, we, Israel, Know you. But God says, 
you made kings and you set up princes, but I knew it not. You claim to know me, but you don't really know me. You have forgotten me, Israel. You, you did not seek my faith. You did not seek my will in your government. They picked kings and princes based on their own agendas and personal preferences. God was not a part of the equation in choosing their government leaders. It's in the text. And God says, now judgment is coming upon you. Friends, I think it's important as the people of God that we seek God's face before we cast any vote in November. We should seek God's will for who we vote for to put in office. And I'm convinced that at times the church has voted against God's will because we were devoted more to the moral majority than we were to God. So this application for us here in this first point is really easy. Before you vote for Chris Kobach, you better pray. Before, well, y'all laughing. I'm serious. I'm, oh, I'm calling the roll this morning. Before you vote for Laura Kelly, you better pray. Before you vote for Greg Orman, you better pray. Before you vote for Ron Estes, you better pray. Before you vote for James Thompson, you ought to pray. Friends, we as the people of God ought to seek God's will. Here's the thing. We've got to understand that even under the new covenant, the New Testament, that leaders, God's appointed leaders, government leaders, are, are the, it's how God is ruling and reigning even through our government leaders. Hard to believe, but I believe so much in the sovereignty of God that he can use Democrats, Republicans, and independents for his own will. Can you believe that God will put the party that you don't like into office? That's how sovereign he is. That's how powerful he is. That he can make Republicans do democratic things. And he can make Democrats do conservative things. Only God could do that. <laughs> Preach, Brandon, I'm doing my best. And that's why in Romans 13, we as the people of God are, to, are called to submit to our government leaders because they were put there by God. Friends, here's what Israel is essentially guilty of. Self-reliance. We don't need God for this choice. We got it. We'll see more of it. And not only had they forgotten God, I'm in the text, in their government, that's kings and princes, but they had also forgotten God in their worship. Look at uh, the last sentence of verse 4. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. Israel 
was tasked with worshiping Yahweh exclusively. But they were not satisfied with worshiping a God that was invisible. They wanted a God that they could see, feel, and touch. And so they made a calf that they could worship. In these two sections already, a key word is made. Look, look, look in the first section, verse, verse number four. They made kings, but not through means. Now, now, now here, in this section, he says they made idols. They were guilty, church, of self-made kings and self-made idols. This is what happens when we forget God, church. We manufacture our own reality and destiny. We as a culture have fallen in love with this idea of being self-made men and women. Our culture loves to brag about being self-made. Beloved, I offer to you today that this idea of being self-made is a demonic trap. God has not created us or saved us in order to be self-made. It is a lie. Matter of fact, when he created us, we were made in his image. (laughs) And then when we were saved, we were made a new creation. You ought not be self-made and you ought not be proud about being self-made. We are not supposed to live in our own power, church. We ought to live a life of faith and complete dependence on him. I ain't self-made. I'm God-made. You want to know how I made it this far? It was nobody but the Lord. You wonder why I look this good, and I do look good this morning, but it's nobody but the Lord. You wonder, can I just testify for a moment? You wonder why I'm still married after 14 years? If it had been left to me, I would have messed the whole thing up, but the Lord kept us. You wonder why the bridge is still standing after three years? It was nobody but the Lord. The bridge ain't self-made. You ain't self-made. It was nobody but God. Because if God was to blink because he was tired, the whole earth would fall apart. (laughs) We need the Lord just to keep on living, to keep on surviving. They forgot God in their worship. Not only did they forget God in government and forget God in their worship, but they also forgot God in their foreign policy. Look at verses 8 through 10. I have to show y'all in the Bible, otherwise y'all say he's preaching politics. So I'm going to show it to you. Verse 8, Israel is swallowed up already. They are among the nations as a useless vessel. They have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone. Verse 10, they hire allies among the nations. They forgot God in their foreign alliances. In verse 10, They hire allies among the nations. They were seeking alliances with other nations for the sake of national, here's the word, security. They wanted protection from being defeated by foreign powers. 
they trusted in nations. And in return for protection, they had to pay a tribute to those kings and countries. They paid for, for what they could have gotten for free from Yahweh. All they had to do was trust in God's covenant. It's in the Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 7. Here's the promise that, God's made, that God makes to his people. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come against you one way, but they shall flee before you seven ways. That's in the word of God. And all they had to do was trust God's word. They made alliances for the sake of security. Friends, what partnerships and associations have you made? For the sake of security and protection. I think it's important to remind the people of God what the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, where he exhorts us, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. The New Living Translation says, don't team up with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever. See, we like to uh, quote that when it comes to marriage. But that's not, that's an appropriate application. But Paul was talking about all of life. They also have forgotten God and their religion. Verses 11 through 14. According to verse number 11, they had concocted a multi altar system for making sacrifices to remove their sins. They, they, they made the altars, and at the altar, that's where they were to atone for their sins. But the text says, instead, those altars became places for sinning. They offered sacrifices to God, but God says, I don't want that. God says, I do not accept them. So the question that we must ask one another is, what would cause God to do this? Friends, because sacrifices are an offense to God when not combined with wholehearted devotion to his commandments. Let me say that again. Y'all didn't get it. Sacrifices are an offense to God when not combined with wholehearted devotion to his commandments. Let me bring it to 2018. Your quiet time is not acceptable to God if you're not wholeheartedly devoted to him. This was their worship. They went through the motions, but they didn't really mean it. How do you know that they didn't mean it? Because they were not living according to God's word. So God's resolve, they forgot God, but God would not forget their sin. God says, I will remember your sin and punish you for your sin. Beloved, this section teaches us that there is a price to pay in forgetting God. There is punishment for the failure to know 
God. Those who don't know God perish. Here's what Jesus said in his prayer to his heavenly father in John chapter 17, verse 3. He said, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So I've just got a series of questions for you today, church. Friends, do you know God? Do you know him as the one who sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die for your sin that you, so that you can be forgiven of your sin and have eternal life? Not, 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 not do you know about God, but do you know him? It, do you know him as the satisfier of your soul? Do you know him as the one who is gracious and merciful? but also holy and just. Do you know him as the one who will judge the living and the dead? Child of God, you who are saved, sanctified, and filled with the Holy Ghost, have you forgotten God? How do you know if you've forgotten God? Let me ask you this. Do you seek God for all of life's decisions and choices? Let me go back and emphasize. Do you seek God for all of life's decisions and choices? Just this past week, I had the opportunity to speak at Newman University, and their theme was peace that fills my soul. And God immediately said, Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing. Here it is. But in everything, with thanksgiving, make your request known to God. Question. Are you in the driver's seat of your life or is God? I'm just trying to determine if we've forgotten God. What can you most attribute your success to? Who, who do you trust for security, protection, and provision? Let's look together at chapter 9, verse 1. Rejoice not, O Israel. Exult not like the peoples. For you have played the whore, forsaking your God. You have loved the prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. In this section, this chapter, here's the lesson we are to learn. They forsook God. Therefore, God gave them to another lover. They forsook God. Therefore, God gave them to another lover. The context of this verse for telling them not to rejoice was likely some sort of festival. At the time of the harvest, there would be a proclamation like, like this. Rejoice, Israel, for Yahweh has given you a harvest. 
And God's word to Israel here in Hosea chapter 9 is don't rejoice. You are an infidel. You have been unfaithful in that you have sought another lover. Israel was guilty, church, of seeking prosperity and wealth and health like the other nation by means of the fertility cult. Instead of a harvest, God says, you won't get a harvest, you'll actually get a famine. That's, chapter, that's verse number two. Essentially, God makes a mockery of their prostitution and shows them that the wages that you got from that other lover were not worth it. And God says, instead of this being a time of joy, it's really going to be a time of mourning. Verse 4 mentions mourners' bread. Verse 6 talks of them being buried. He says, your current situation, you are approaching it like it's a party, but it's really a funeral. Verse 7 tells us, the days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel shall know it. Now, the God in particular that they cheated on Yahweh with was named Baal. Baal was the fertility god. And here, they went to Baal in order to give them offspring. And God says, as a result of your unfaithfulness, you will reap infertility. Look at verse number 11 of chapter 9. Ephraim, Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. And God says, since you have forsaken me. Other, and the idea of them forsaking, forsaking God is the idea of that they have been jilted at the altar. And God says, I will love you no more. This marriage is over. And therefore, you will be wanderers in the nations. This is a sentence of exile. Beloved, what we see in these two sections is God gives Israel over to another lover. He allows Israel to suffer the consequences of her idolatry and her adultery. God gave them over to what they pursued and wanted. So finally, chapter 10, we see the ultimate fate of an unfaithful people. Look with me at chapter number 10. Look at verse number 2. Their heart is false. Friends, unfaithfulness to God all boils down to the heart. Their actions revealed what was really in their heart. Their heart was false. And God says, now you must bear your guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. 
Look at verse number six. The king itself shall be, this, the thing itself, excuse me, shall be carried to Assyria as tribute to the great king. Ephraim shall be put to shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his idol. In other words, God says, I'm going to destroy all of your cultic symbols, but I'm also going to destroy your political symbol. Look at verse number 7. Samaria's king shall perish like a twig on the face of the water. God says, all of these things, as a result of your unfaithfulness, I'm going to destroy. What a dark and heavy three chapters. Go to verse number 12 of chapter 10. There's a prophetic interjection by Hosea. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground. For it is the time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. The the prophet Hosea is exhorting them to live righteously before God. And if they do, they will receive the benefits attached with God's love. He says to them, it is time to seek the Lord. You've sought kings, you've sought idols, and you've sought nations. And the word for them and for us is turn away from your kings, from your idols, and your nations. They cannot save you. These have been objects of misplaced trust. Stop seeking false hope. It is time to seek the Lord. He says, if you do, you will reap righteousness. Real quick, real quick, and I'm almost done. Go back to chapter number 8. Chapter number 8. Look at verse number 7. Hosea 8, verse number 7. For they sow the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. Again, they sow the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. Now, chapter 10, verse 12. Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love. To sow the wind, chapter 8, verse number 7, is to sow things that are worthless and useless. And, and, And essentially, God is showing them that what you did when you sought wealth, health, in prosperity through government and idol gods and the nations, you were sowing the wind. Therefore, you're going to reap a storm, and that storm 
is God's wrath. There was still hope. According to chapter 10, verse number 12, they could sow righteousness by seeking the Lord. and They could reap righteousness. Friends, these three chapters teach us this old, simple proverb. We reap what we sow. On one hand, they sowed the wind, they reaped the whirlwind. God was showing that he was just and right and righteous and punishing them for their unfaithfulness. Israel, because now, verse number 9, we didn't read this. Verse number 9 is dark. It is heartbreaking. Because God says, not only am I going to punish you, but I'm going to punish your children. The children, the babies are going to die because of your sin and your unfaithfulness. And what we want to do in those cases is we got to say, that can't be our God. Our God is loving. He's got to love the little babies. Even the song says Jesus loves the little children. All the little children of the world. How could God ever do this? And this is such a stumbling block for some people that they'd rather say, I want nothing to do with that God. But God has shown them that this is your own fault. This is not me being mean and hateful and unjust and unfair and unkind. No, 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 no. You, you sowed the wind and now you're going to reap the whirlwind. The covenant said, if you obey me, I'll bless you. But if you disobey me, I'll curse you. Both God and Israel are obligated to the covenant. So Israel disobeyed God. So because God is obligated to the covenant as well, he had to curse them. And so what God is showing them and showing us is that we reap what we sow. They sowed unfaithfulness, and they were going to reap God's wrath. So before anybody leaves here thinking, I just, I can't believe God would do that. God is probably saying the same thing. I can't believe the people who I saved and redeemed from the hand of the enemy would turn their backs and follow after another lover. And God says, I brought you out of Egypt, and now you have turned your backs on me. You can go back to Egypt. They forgot about this God who saved them, rescued them, redeemed them, and delivered them. And what we need today, even just like Israel, is we need to remember what the the extreme lengths that God has gone to save our souls and to save us and rescue and deliver us from the hand of the enemy. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. The one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit 
reap eternal life. So friend, worship team, start making your way back. The question that I have for you is, what are you sowing? If you are here today and you are not yet trusting in Jesus Christ, you sow unbelief, you will reap eternal separation from God for eternity. Child of God, you reap what you sow. These were God's chosen people. They were, quote unquote, saved. What are you sowing? Are you sowing unfaithfulness? Are you sowing religion and ritualism? You show up on Sunday morning. And you look like you're on your way to heaven, but on Monday you look like you just came from hell. On Sunday you saved, sanctified, and filled with the Holy Ghost. Gosh, your kind of glory just looks like it's all over you. And really what that was is just some vegetable oil. But then on Monday, your co-workers don't know if you're saved or you're not. You're no different from Israel. You go through the motions, but your heart is far from God. What are you sowing? Are you sowing gossip and envy and jealousy and malice and hatred? That's fleshly stuff. You sow, you sow of the flesh, you will reap corruption. But you sow things like love, joy, peace. The book says those people reap eternal life. And, and really what's going on here is those who sow this, they don't do that in order to get eternal life. They sow it because they already have eternal life. The problem at the end of the day, as we saw in chapter 10, verse 2, their heart was false. problem with Israel and the church is that too many times we have a divided heart. We love God and we love the world. But God says if you love me you won't love the world. You can't serve two masters. You'll love the one and hate the other. And if God doesn't have your whole heart, he doesn't want any of it. Because we're to love the, God, love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our mind, and all of our soul. 
And so I'm going to ask you now to stand on your feet and proclaim with me in song. Tell God, my heart is yours. Take it all. And if we give God our heart, we'll forsake the idols of our lives. We'll stop seeking satisfaction, security from the gods of this world. And so today I'm asking you to offer your heart to God. Some of us need to repent and come back and say, God, I've given my heart to other things. I've given my heart to other people. I've given my heart to all kinds of things. Lord, I'm repenting of that, and I'm giving my heart back to you because I want to reap your steadfast love.